So welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brian Lau from Duke University. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with uh, Dr. Travis Decker from the Air Force Academy. Travis is a great friend of mine and a co-traveling and a traveling fellow. He also did his residency at Duke, and so our roots go back a while. And he was the program chair for SOMOS annual meeting and is a future program chair for ANA annual meeting. So uh, a big leader for ANA and, um, and for SOMOS. And uh, it's a pleasure of mine to have another opportunity to chat with him about his work. Uh, and the project we're talking about today is a paper that he authored uh, titled The Perioperative Gabapentin May Reduce Opioid Requirement for Early Postoperative Pain in Patients Undergoing Anterior Cruciate Ligament Reconstruction. It's a systematic review of randomized controlled trials. Uh, which was published in July 2023 in the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include uh, Drs. Olivia Blaber, Zachary Ammon, Nicholas DeFelpio, and uh, Dr. Robert Laprade. Uh, welcome, Travis, and thanks for joining. And also a special thank you for uh, Veterans Weekend this past weekend um, and for all that you do for our country. Thanks, Brian. Uh... Glad to be on on the uh, the opposite side of this the side of the speaker. Yeah, it's uh, it man, what a journey we've had together as we've gone back through kind of the traveling fellowship, taking away lessons learned that we learned from Doc Hunter and and then Harris Sloan. Like it's just funny that this all kind of comes full circle, and now we're back back doing this together. And uh, what a wonderful opportunity that Chris Tucker and those that group has really set up with us uh, for us to be able to kind of share our experiences together and kind of review some things that we've we're trying to do to just kind of break into the scene here as we're surrounded by so many more successful and experienced guys around us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're the one that kind of got me into this podcast. And uh, so I appreciate all that. First thing, you know, obviously, uh, ACL surgery is one of the most common things we do as, you know, um, arthroscopists and sports medicine surgeons. And um, you have the luxury of having experience both in the civilian and the military kind of um, populations. Um, and just generally, before we kind of get into like the pain management stuff, how would you say that are, are they treated differently in a civilian versus military in, in general in terms of ACL reconstructions and and the rehab different? Um, like how, how would you compare your experiences? You know, it, I'm sure it's like it's still pretty regionally specific. As you know, I started out going down to Florida and working with the spec ops groups down there. And man, they were as like cutting edge and up to speed with rehab and pain control and diet, nutrition, lab work. They were really optimized and they were teed up. I mean, what fantastic athletic trainers I was able to work work with and work through. The physical therapists were just as, as great as ever and uh, really innovative in their strategies for getting people back. Uh, you know, in terms of ACL reconstruction, I think a lot of people are pretty up to date just because, as you know, within the military, musculoskeletal pathology is the number one aspect within our, our overall health care that decreases readiness. And so for us, readiness is always kind of our mark back to our equivalent of return to play is return to duty. Can people get back and perform PT tests and are they deployable? And so for us, the metric is widespread because that's our entire population. Musculoskeletal pathology in non-wartime uh, pathologies, specifically knee and shoulder surgery for me, and it, what does it do to our readiness? How does it limit them? How does it limit their abilities to perform their job on a daily basis? And can we just get them back to duty as, at a baseline? So I think there's a little bit different expectation as their job is completely specific to it. And as it comes to, and then the natural question is, well, is return to duty the same as return to sport in an athlete, specifically in a civilian population? I think it depends on which military author you're going to ask and kind of what that means within the literature. 
I think importantly, it does have a, an important role within um, within the literature, but they're they're two very different things. And for us, because we see such a high concentration of it, it's our best way to relate to civilian practice uh, in order to, to have statistical analysis and concrete numbers on how we're performing overall as a group. But I'd say overall, you know, everything's very up to date and people are, are adjusting graph types, techniques, uh, and then modernizing the rehab uh, to be able to, that is best suited um, to the patient and the individual. Um, but uh, I think there's also a total difference between the the patient itself. You you're treating Duke athletes that are top of their game with high expectations. That has a lot of high pressure associated with it. There's a lot of the other guys that are dealing with high end professional athletes where there's expectations. These military guys, I, I mean, I think there is something to it. They come in and they say, "Hey, doc, I trust you." Uh, I trust your judgment. I trust what you're going to do. They're just like, I just want to be able to earn a living. Those are two different mindsets, two different, uh, two different thought processes on how to get these guys back and what to do and what's best for them to do. Um, and so there's just, there's subtle differences. I think overall, there's a lot that can be taken away from both. And I've been very privileged to have been uh, a part of both the military system now as uh, on very much junior faculty and then as a trainee out in the civilian world. Yeah, I think those are, are great points. And I think that um, actually I would I would imagine that with the military, how frequently you see this and it's like it's really a matter of life and death. So I, I imagine um, that the rehab and the techniques are probably you guys are probably pushing the envelope, probably being more advanced than the civilians because um, you guys see it so much more. It's, it's like you said, so ingrained into their daily activities and, and their lifestyles and their jobs. So um, definitely lean toward the military population and the things that you guys have learned and taught us a lot. So, um, and then when it's specifically to in relation to this project that you did this paper, um, you know, how is the page management done? Um, you know, this paper in the systematic review uh, went through a couple of studies and they talked about kind of inpatient um, stays and PCA pumps and, you know, it's what's the standard of care and what, how are things normally done in terms of regional blocks versus inpatient stays, outpatient um, in your experience? And, um, you know, how is it really in terms of the study in terms of the early, middle and late kind of um, pain? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of these studies have been historically and and as you know, I love operating. And so I just I'll have to clarify as much as I love doing ACL reconstructions, I I, I may. I, I still won't get to the life or death situation about putting an ACL in somebody is life or death quite yet. You know, sometimes we, we try to make it seem that way, but uh, uh, no, I think most people are pretty conservative about doing the rehab and making sure that people are, are doing all the, the right things before surgery in terms of we're doing BFR, we're getting range of motion back and we're trying to definitely maintain the specific standard of care. But um, uh, you know, in terms of, perioperative care and how I I don't know of anybody that's doing any inpatient ACL reconstructions now everything's outpatient with multimodal analgesia specifically with regional blocks I think that is more um, uh, surgeon dependent and it's been different based off of where I've been uh, when I was first in Florida and now up here in Colorado Springs but the adductor IPAX combo, which I think there's recent literature to show how, that it does work uh, at it um, uh, 
in terms of post perioperative and postoperative pain scores, uh, these um, these motor sparing blocks, I think have been a game changer for us in terms of being able to do even bigger surgeries outside of simply doing an ACL reconstruction uh, for the individual. But all these are being done outpatient. There's no PCAs involved anymore. Everybody's trying to limit narcotic use just based off of what we know as the side effects, the addictive uh, cap capabilities and capacities seen within long-term usage of those medications. And then like the side effects from them. I mean, they're, they're, they're not taken without having significant possible consequences and side effects. And so people are limiting them intraoperatively too. So um, I think that overall, we've gotten a lot of our strategies from the total joints world. Total joints world has really transitioned to being outpatient. COVID forced our hand. We had to adjust, we had to get better. And we had to maintain our livelihood, even as surgeons. And so people traditionally that were doing inpatient surgical procedures, we're learning how could we do this in a safe and effective way on an outpatient basis. And so ACL reconstruction for me universally now is being done on an outpatient basis um, with uh, uh, with our own multimodal uh, mix that is opioid sparing uh, with these regional blocks. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I guess that's probably what impetus to have this project, which is trying to think what other things to add to those blocks. I agree those blocks have been a game changer in really helping with pain control and making this more outpatient and more tolerable for patients. And I guess that's what made you guys think about looking up at gabapentin and pregabalin. Like, uh, was it from the orthoplasty literature or was there something that you guys noticed that kind of brought on this project? Well, as you know, as the junior surgeon coming onto a practice, especially starting, everybody questions everything you say and do. And uh, especially when the old hats are in the room, uh, they, and you're, you know, I was lucky to train at just some amazing places. And then immediately, as soon as I get to get down to Florida, they had never heard of any small training center in, in Vail, Colorado. They had never heard of it. They didn't care. They just wanted to know, like, what did I want and why did I want it? And so when I got there, people were doing Lyrica and they were doing opioids and it was kind of all over the place. And so I got tasked to look up and come up with a multimodal program for our outpatient surgery. I was coupling this with our plastic, the chief of surgery for us, who's a plastic surgeon, who had some great ideas. And they were talking about doing like little sips of water and Gatorade for early recovery uh, to prevent nausea and all these other things, in addition just to the pain aspect and the pain component. <clears throat> and so for me, on formulary based on Florida, it took more and it took extra and it cost more to get Lyrica compared to Gabapentin. And so all the anesthesiologists are like, well, do we have to use Lyrica? Do we have to use Lyrica? Because that's what we saw in the total joints literature. Do we have to use Lyrica? So we started looking it up and we're like, well, do we have to do it in sports patients? And that's really what kind of what led to this project is I had to kind of learn about it. And, and being early in your career, you see a lot of these questions. You're just like, well, I just did it just because that's the way I was taught to do it. But then when you need to actually really look up the question, it kind of comes in, it just, a lot more light is shed onto the situation when you realize that maybe there's either not great literature, which I think we can point to even in this paper, 
that may be outdated and there's time for updates? Or how can we extrapolate it from other fields, such as the total joints literature, into how best serve our patients? So that's really was the impetus for the study. That's that's awesome. I mean, I think that just goes to, you know, evidence-based stuff and how you're kind of looking back and trying to learn from the, how others have done it. That's like, that's great. And I think that's that's good for other people to understand like what it takes to, to change practices, make sure really see what other people have done. Um, and in your study, speaking of pregabalin and, you know, Lyrica and gabapentin, your study does a great job of, uh, in, your, in your manuscript, they're kind of describing the differences, but maybe for some of our readers, uh, our listeners who haven't, you know, you know, thought about pharmacokinetics uh, in a while, maybe just a really quick, like, short summary of what the differences are to two and why that, why that, why that might matter. I really think the biggest difference is bioavailability, time of onset, and duration of onset. Those are the biggest takeaways that I took from comparing the two. They work in similar ways to prevent like this release of the neurotransmitters to in turn modulate the, the pain pathway. It prevents like these hyperanalgesia effects while gabapentin just takes longer to have onset. And so uh, when, when it's interesting, if you're looking at the studies, they talk about how and when this can be related to where there's pain modification based off of that early or intraoperative or late postoperative period, it it's gabapentin takes longer. And oftentimes it, it requires these segmental dose effects to be able to get up high enough. But when they looked and they compared the two of them, they found that gabapentin worked as well. And when it worked as well, it also didn't have the same side effects that Lyrica was getting. But interestingly enough, it was also Lyrica was done at a dose that was significantly lower than that which was done in total joints patient population. So they were comparing 300 milligrams in the total joints population to within the ACL reconstruction or even the ACL repair study was done at 150 milligram preoperative dose. So I think there's still like, because there was a lot of heterogeneity between the studies and what else was used and kind of even the patient population and, and selection, there's a, there there's still a lot of holes and a lot of things that we have left to answer. Uh, but it at least gave us some framework to be able to compare the two, knowing that there is some differences, even though they work in similar ways. Uh, and ultimately we found like, if there's no difference, well, what else is there at the end of the day to compare the two of them? And ultimately, there's cost. Gabapentin is significantly cheaper on formulary compared to Lyrica, even within the military system. Everybody's worried about cost, especially those that are invested and interested in uh, surgery centers. So if we can help maintain or keep down costs while still having the same, if not better effect with less side effects, then maybe maybe there it's, it was something to look into. Yeah, I think that and cost is definitely obviously big issues now, and um, and then I think it goes back to kind of your key finding in this was actually that gabapentin was useful, you know, um, and maybe and, you know, at least from the studies that you have highlighted, that pregabalin may not have been, but as you highlighted, the, the dosing might have been an issue, and um, and so. I guess, you know, two questions for that. You know, you mentioned the heterogeneity in terms of the dosing and timing. Um, what's your recommendation based on the literature and maybe what, what you've been experiencing you're doing in your practice? Like, what should people be doing in terms of dosing and timing? Is it pre-operative, post-operatively? And uh, when, when should, how should people use and incorporate gabapentin into their practice? So I've been using it uh, as a pre-operative medication. Um, and then with... Uh, 
and while also giving it as a prescription postoperatively that's typically with used within the first seven to 10, 10 days after surgery. Uh, there are some sedating effects associated with the medication. So it does tend to help people sleep at night as well, which is a, a nice secondary benefit for these folks. But oftentimes the dosage of it has been the question. And for us, we're doing 600 milligrams as a single dose done around one to two hours prior to surgery. This is consistent with the studies that were done within this uh, systematic review. And I, I think that, you know, we, we see that the bioavailability of it is three to four hours after. And so maybe the peak effect of it is around the time or the end of the surgery to help decrease that an immediate need for post-operative uh, opioid analgesics for quick onset and offset. And if we can just decrease that amount, while also decreasing the intraoperative opioid requirement with either the benefit of the gabapentinoid or that of even simply just the regional block. We're kind of hitting all of those. And so I think it's just one piece of the puzzle. You have uh, you have an NSAID involved, you have acetaminophen, you have gabapentin, you have your anti-nausea medications on and, uh, and on board early to prevent any of the post-operative nausea that's associated with decreased patient outcomes after. It just helps with their overall comfort and a better overall picture after surgery. And so, I, like I said, I've been doing a single dose to 600 milligrams preoperatively, followed by around a seven to 10 day uh, prescription of gabapentin afterwards. And um, it it seems uh, to be consistent with the study in having decreased overall opioid requirements post-surgically. That's great. Uh, that's, that's real tangible kind of um, marks for people to follow. Uh, you mentioned also some other things you're adding to your cocktail um, in terms of your NSAID. Are you doing that also preoperatively or is that just a postoperative and what's the dose of that? No, we're doing a, uh, we're doing a, uh, a pre-op dose of Celebrex, a single dose of 200 milligrams. Okay. Um, and then do you use Tordal at all postoperatively for like standard ACO? Uh, uh, not, not typically. Nope. We have not been, yeah. we've been using it kind of as a rescue to, as, uh, opioid sparing, uh, which is of course we have our cases that we need to do it in, but no, we, we really haven't had to even dip into Tordal or really the post-operative, uh, opioids. Yeah. So I mean, from, from my practice, I use, I use ibuprofen, you know, um, uh, 400 milligrams and they do it. We do it preoperatively. So they're taking a pill probably the same time that you're uh, as they're getting there, so like an hour and a half, two hours before following through. And um, that seems to have helped a lot. We haven't incorporated gabapentin yet, but that's something, you know, after reading this study, that's I feel like we should be incorporating. Um, and then question, you know, you mentioned, and you mentioned in your study as well, that it's decreased opioid consumption. Are you still prescribing any opioids patients or are you just doing, you know, the the gabapentin and the block post-operative, anything else and the, and the anti- um, You know, yeah, I still do prescribe them. Um, I, I'm i not brave enough, nor am I uh, super thrilled about getting routine post-operative phone calls and need for pre remote prescription fills. Um, the I think that I will say that the patients use less than I prescribe and are often turning them in at the first visit. I do an extensive amount of counseling after or before surgery talking about the discomfort that they're likely to experience, especially based off of graph choice, to help kind of guide them through. 
and kind of give them this almost rank order sheet of what to take and when to take it uh, to try and avoid opioids. And, uh, you know, in some ways it's to their detriment because they get behind in their pain because some of the people are just so afraid with all the publicity and uh, the all the attention that the media has given the opioid, opioid pandemic uh, that or, or epidemic, I should say, that um, that it that they refuse to take it. And so then they're hurting. And so I still prescribe it. I still give it as a PRN and it, I kind of inform them like, hey, anything left over at the first post-operative visit, you can turn it in. But these are the rank order of meds that I would take and when I would take them. And most people have been pretty good, but there's those people that like, I mean, there's just such a wide spectrum of folks after surgery that we encounter of based off of their resilience, uh, their mental toughness. And, and of course, the whole idea that everyone has a thr high threshold for pain. Uh, we quickly see all of us as surgeons have, uh, have seen that really that's almost like one of those stark warning signs that when they lead into that preoperatively, you know, that they, they might be, this might be a harbinger for uh, uh, not so great post-operative pain control. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone can relate to at least a few patients that that's happened with. Um, and uh, so what is the opioid that you're giving? And you mentioned also a little bit about depending on graft type and stuff. So are you changing the opioid that you're giving or the amount you're giving based on graft choice that you end up doing? No, I still have like, man, my perioperative nurses would lose their minds if they had to match graphs and uh, graphs with medications being prescribed, not knowing which and when and how. So I try to really simplify and prescribe the same thing for almost any surgical patient. That way the nurses can counsel and be appropriately counseling each of them. So I just do a, an oxycodone five um, and I give them about 10 days worth of, uh, of oxycodone to take, uh, every six hours. Um, and so overall the total amount is not that much, but, um, I don't base it off of that. I just, I tend to, to let them know that, you know, I'm mainly doing quad and BTB ACL, BTB ACLs at this point. And, uh, you know, quad ACL reconstructions, the pain for me has just been very minimal and they tend to not hurt as much. The BTBs, they start out a little bit more painful, but then they easily get back to kind of the equivalence of the quad harvest. So I think there's something to it about taking bone versus soft tissue only. Um, and so it's more of just a preoperative counseling uh, issue more so than it is either a nursing or a, pr a prescribing issue. Yeah, I, I, I kind of do the same thing. I I also just kind of keep it simple. Same thing for every ACL reconstruction. And I also use oxycodone because I feel like they can titrate that better. There's no Tylenol in there. So, can, so it's definitely a Tylenol if they need to. So I, I try and do a similar kind of setup as you have. Um, well, I mean, Travis, thanks for um, bringing this attention. As you mentioned, uh, opioid you know, reduction is a huge thing that we want to make sure we, we keep an eye on that as orthopedic surgeons. We're, we see a lot of pain and we're, we're always asked for narcotics. So I think this study was really useful in terms of saying ways to decrease that and, and, and also protect our patients from themselves in a way. But any you know, last key points from your study that you want to highlight for, for us and for the listeners? No, I mean, I think that both are reasonable options. There's holes in the literature that we've got to really evaluate I think there's going to be some great opportunities for us to continue to modify our pain regimens that may be more procedure specific as we uh, get along further and push the envelope even with doing outpatient surgical procedures. 
we keep doing bigger and bigger procedures outpatient. Uh, we've seen the benefits of doing them outpatient and preventing uh, even nosocomial infections afterwards. And so I think it's just more a matter of like, be critical of the literature, understand what it's been used for in the past and where it can find where you can find benefit from it in the future with certain surgical procedures. And for us, gabapentin has been something that has been uh, definitely of benefit and it is cost effective. And if it can decrease the opioid consumption overall, it's been a win for us thus far. And we'll continue to modify and titrate it as as we can. Yeah. Well, thanks, Travis. Again, thanks uh, for all your service and th happy belated uh, Veterans Day. And for our listeners out there, again, this is a study uh, published in the Arthroscopy Journal in uh, July 2023 about uh, preoperative gabapentin. So um, thanks, Travis. Uh, thanks so much again. And again, the, the views expressed on this podcast uh, do not necessarily represent the views of Arthroscopy Association or Arthroscopy Journal. And uh, again, I hope everyone has a good um, rest of their day.